Considering the 139th Psalm, and what a beautiful psalm this is, we mentioned before that one of the Puritan writers said this is perhaps the greatest of the psalms. I don't know that you could say that about any particular chapter, but it is a glorious chapter with so many of our Lord's attributes described for us here. And I want us to look at the psalm and read it through together to get the full uh, meaning here, and then we'll go back and look at where we left off last week. O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Notice the personal pronouns the psalmist uh, asking and telling the Lord to search him. Thou knowest my down-sitting and my uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Thou compassest my path and my lying down, and art acquainted with all my ways. There's not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. Thou hast beset me behind and before, and laid thine hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain unto it. Whither shall I go from thy spirit, or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to thee. For thou hast possessed my reins, Thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. My substance was not hid from thee, when I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect. And in thy book all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there were none of them. How precious also are thy thoughts unto me, O God! How great is the sum of them! If I should count them, they are more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with thee. Surely thou wilt slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, ye bloody men, for they speak against thee wickedly, and thine enemies take thy name in vain. Do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate thee? And am I not grieved with those that rise up against thee? I hate them with a perfect hatred. I count them mine enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. As Israel's most beloved king, David had gone through much to get to where he was. And now he's enjoying a reign that is blessed, a reign that is peaceful. The enemies have been put to, at rest. It is a reign of peace, and David is overseeing the vast kingdom that God has placed him there. It was only a memory, only a hope for many years as he ran from Saul and as he suffered at the hands of his enemies. God has used David to write many of the Psalms. We know that his lifelong goal is to build the temple and, uh, but that was not God's will for him. And we've noticed that a godly desire is not in and of itself a call. We praise the Lord for all godly desires. But 
where God has placed his call and his will, he will guide and he will provide and he will let it be obvious of what he's going to do. And so that should encourage all of us. Some people would hear that and be discouraged. I want to do something for the Lord, and he has not brought it to pass. I I talk with people often, pastors and those who may be uh, between churches or not have a place of of service, and and they're wondering why the Lord has dealt with them thus. And uh, my answer to that is the Lord is preparing you for what he has prepared for you. He's always working on both ends of the lines, and his, his ways are not our ways in, in his way of doing that. But uh, sometimes the Lord waits. We know that the scriptures tell us if he waits is that he may be gracious. And so we should not take his waiting or his silence is that, that he's not working or that he's not concerned. It's, it's that Nothing could be further from the truth. So David uh, wanted to, to build the, the temple, but God did not even let his choice servant do that. Again, even that shows us the humanity of David, that even someone of his stature and his being a man after God's own heart did not have everything come to pass in his life. Not all of his life goals were achieved. We hear a lot about that in, in our society today, setting your goals and reaching every goal. But, and it's good to have them if they're the Lord's goals. It was not the Lord's goal for David to build the temple, no matter how noble that was, no matter how much his heart was in it, he had a part to play in it, but it was not to construct it. And so he was overwhelmed that God would choose him and, and bring him to that place of, of service, a, a shepherd boy, a, a tender of sheep, the least of his father's household. And now he's in a place of great responsibility and of great privilege. And David never let that get to his head. Lesser people would, wouldn't they? Can you imagine being brought from such low places to such a high place? Position and fame and power, not many people can handle them, those things. Those ruin most people. They corrupt most people. And as we study history and look at the rich and famous and the stars, very few can go through that headiness, that acclaim, that privilege without it marring them in some way. It's just human nature. And so uh, David is marveling at the Lord's uh, bringing him to the place where he is. The one true God, the creator God. And so he begins to praise the Lord in this, this prayer, this psalm. And he praises him for his omniscience. O oh Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. He knows everything. Please don't let that become a cliche in your talking. Sometimes we'll talk with one another. Well, the Lord knows And of course he does. But you need to let that sink in your heart and mind. David tells us to what extent he knows. When God searches you, it's not because he needs to know something. This is just helping us to understand God. When we search for something, we're at a loss, aren't we? I know I put that check somewhere. I know that my W-2 form, where is it? It's underneath. And we begin to search. Our searching is to find out. But God's searching comes from everything he already knows it. It's a revelation to us, though, that he shows us ourselves. And the word there literally means to pierce through. And it speaks of our Lord's all-knowing, his laser gaze, as the book of Revelation describes his eyes or his eyes of fire, piercing 
through excuses, piercing through uh, presumption and pride and all those things that would be cloud uh, him in between us. He sees us all. Remember, Hagar says, thou art the God who sees me. You're the God who sees me. And that is a, a, a declaration about who God is. He was so gracious and so powerful, and yet he condescended to come to a rejected slave and uh, comforted her and instructed her. We see here also that he says four truths about God's ability to see him through and through. You know, my downsitting and my uprising, when we move from one place to the other, you know, in our mind, we think that God is so busy, so majestic, so filled with uh, things to ponder and do that certainly we might escape under the radar. But David says nothing that can, there's nothing of the kind. We don't escape anything. He sees when we move, change positions. And again, the analogy here is not to trivialize the Lord. It, this is how encompassing his knowledge is, how much he cares for us to observe our every move, our every motive, our every thought. He knows the motives behind all that we ponder and think. And, the, and in fact, he alone knows this. No one else knows our motives, do they? The dearest on earth cannot read our hearts and minds as much as they may know us. God knows us better than we know ourselves. We don't even understand our motives sometimes and comprehend all of them. And remember, he told the crowd on several occasions, he knew their thoughts and spake to them. And then he says in verse 3, Thou compass me, or you sift and search out my path, and my lying down, and my art acquainted with all my ways. He knows the number of steps we take. He knows uh, where we've been and where we're going and where we would go if we, had the, uh, if we were released, <laughs> if we uh, could do what, exactly what we wanted to do. He knows that about us. He knows our words. Just that one thing is a very humbling thing. The, 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 every idle word will be given account of. We alone of God's creation speak. We have the ability to express desire and thoughts and ideas and to communicate not only our own thinking, but we can communicate to others the words of God. A very privileged thing. Just think that the privilege of speech to being able to communicate and to, to read and to uh, express our, our desires and our thoughts in words written and spoken. What a sobering thought that is. It should cause us to think about what we say before we say it, shouldn't it? We're so glib. We say, I, I heard a lady recently tell me, she said, I'm just unfiltered. I say whatever I want to say. I thought, oh, my goodness, please, you know. That's not a compliment. That's not something to brag about. That's, that's uh, to have an unfiltered mouth, to not think about what we say. And she meant it. I'm just who I am. I say what I think. And, and uh, that's not good. <laughs> the, the world may prize that, but the scriptures do not. And our Lord does not. We ought to make sure that we speak the truth in love, for example, and that our words are well chosen, that our words are to edifying and building up. They're not just to tear down. Anyone can say the obvious and, and, and say cutting words, and, uh, but, but that's not why we're here, and that's not how we should live our lives. We should, our speech should be with grace and, uh, and, and be carefully chosen. He says in verse 5, you've beset me behind and before you've laid your hand upon me. And as we mentioned, that means the Lord knows how to hem us in, doesn't he? He knows that, that really beset means to, to be cramped or limited. 
and it was used for besieging a town, for the enemy to, to besiege a town. And God hems us in on every side. That's how, what he does to the sinner till he gets him to the point where he or she will break down and submit to his reign and rule and salvation. And then when we become the Lord's, he, he keeps close reins on us. We mentioned Jonah. Jonah foolishly thought that he could just get away from God and, and be released from his call. But the Bible tells us the gifts and callings of God are without repentance. When God called Jonah to Nineveh, he never changed his mind, did he? He didn't say, oh, you don't want to go? Okay, well, I'll get somebody else. No, Jonah had to go. There wasn't that God couldn't call another prophet. If God can equip one prophet, he can equip two prophets, can't he? It's not that God's in need of people wringing his hands in heaven wishing we would cooperate. We, we act like God is, could do some things if we would just get things, our act together. That's not how God works. If he wants Jonah to go to Nineveh, guess what? Jonah will go to Nineveh. He may take a circuitous route, and he may look like seaweed when he gets there, and whatever you find in a fish's belly, but he will get to Nineveh, even if Jonah is never happy about it. The, the story of Jonah has never uh, ended well for me. You know, when you see Jonah at the end, a pouting preacher, there's nothing worse in our minds than a pouting servant of the Lord, like a spoiled brat. I did what you said and still, and then, and then uh, he knew, I knew you would just, because you're a God of mercy and, and grace, I knew you'd save these people. And look at you, you saved them. <laughs> they repented. He should have been rejoicing. And the, the story does not end well, but, but God is sovereign over pouting prophets, isn't he? And he knows how to deal with his own. He sees through the games that we play and the, the mask that we wear. And even if we try to weave webs of deceit, as David did, David knows this firsthand, doesn't he? Remember the masquerade and the weaving and the covering of sin, gross, horrible sin, murder. It doesn't get any worse or more sordid. And David is speaking from experience when he says, I cannot get away from you. There's no place, there's no plan, there's no plot that can can cancel God's sovereignty and his omniscience out. His conclusion is in verse 6 there, this knowledge is too wonderful to me. It just goes over my head. And yet we must contemplate it. We must know these things about our God or we would relegate him to some... God or pagan God that can be managed on again, off again, or like some genie in the bottle that we can use him when we want him. That's not the God of the Scriptures. The God of the Scripture is absolutely sovereign, and he has his way and his will. He will have his own way. Such knowledge is too wonderful to me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. We can never really know ourselves. That is the goal of the philosopher, the goal of the unsaved person, the goal for the believer is to know the Lord, not ourselves. When you look deep within the abyss of your heart and soul and mind, you only go deeper and darker. You only see things that are more alarming. You never see uh, what would draw you to the Lord. And so we're looking in the wrong place when we're looking within. We often use that terminology, though. If I know my heart, well, you don't. You cannot know it. Only the Lord can know it and reveal it to you. And then you ask him to help you to make your ways right with him. 
The focus is wrong. If you're trying to know your heart and look in your heart, it is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. We're to know the Lord. That is your lifelong goal and passion and assignment is to know the Lord. And may I tell you, the only way to know him is in his word. To search for him as you would treasure. We see throughout the book of Proverbs to to seek and, and ransack the scriptures, to find out about him. Jesus said, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And you do. That's the only place you'll find eternal life in the answers to these questions. There's nothing that can hide us from God. Even in death, we're not hidden from God. The death hurls us into an eternity where we must stand before God and be called into an account. God is present everywhere on both sides of the grave. This life does not limit God. He transcends time and space and our puny little short lifespans. We're like moths before the great eternal one, here for a moment and gone. And, but the soul goes on throughout eternity, always there. The unsaved, the sinner, will see God as well in death. There are those who have voted God out of their thinking and their minds and feel like there's no God. And and when they die, they'll just die like an animal or a plant and be done with it. Oh, no. You still must stand before God. You may ignore him in this life and, and vote him out, cancel him out, not consider him, not regard him, not worship him, not serve him, not love him. You can choose to do that, but you cannot choose to ignore him in eternity. There will be you and God just because someone has ruled God out of their lives and decide to have nothing to do with him does not mean he goes away. We read the sentence in Revelation 22 verse 11. What a sobering sentence it is. He that is unjust or unsaved, let him be unjust still. In other words, in eternity, he will still be just like that. He that is filthy, let him be filthy still. One of the horrible tortures of heaven is that that death does not change I mean not in heaven in eternity and especially in hell death does not change who we were Pilate is still washing his hands Judas is still weeping over his betrayal of the Lord eternally will be doing so putting a man in prison does not change his character he's just a person now confined and not able to do the crime that he was able to do, unless the grace of God reaches and changes him, he's still a person like he was on the outside, character unchanged, just confined. Dr. Phillips says, in lost eternity, people will burn with horrible passions but will have no way to satisfy them. God will be there only as judge. The thought should send a shudder through the sinner's soul. Death does not hide us from God. But not only that, distance does not hide us from God. We see in verse 9, if I take the wings of the morning, if I go to the depths, the part, othermost parts of the sea, even there thy hand shall lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. For the child of God, this is comforting. There's nowhere I can go that God is not there and will lead me and guide me and bless and help me. That's a very comforting thought. Our Lord has promised that, hasn't he? I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. And on your worst day, on your loneliest day here on earth, with no human smile or uh, help in sight, God is there. The Lord never leaves us. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world, no matter where we go or what task we have to perform. 
how lonely it may be, what stage of life you may be in. And I know I'm speaking to some people who are in the twilight years and you may be shut in and, and very alone, and yet God is there. Sir John Franklin lost his life looking for the Northwest Passage. And he wanted to, to blaze a trail through the snow-clad polar re- regions to the Pacific. In 1845, he led one of the best-equipped expeditions ever to enter the Arctic. None of the team ever came back. Years later, Sir Francis McClintock discovered what remained of the, that, that expedition, including a collection of books and their bones. Among the books was Franklin's copy of John Todd's student manual, turned down to a particular page as though that dead explorer was pointing his finger to this place. On that turned down page, almost the last page in the book, is found this dialogue. Are you not afraid to die? No. No? Why does the uncertainty of another state give you no concern? Because God has said to me, fear not, when thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. That was it. In the frozen north, Sir John Franklin knew the abiding presence of God. A monument was erected uh, to to his memory uh, of this navigator. Lord Tennyson wrote the inscription that's on the monument. Not here. The white north has thy bones, and thou, heroic sailor soul, art passing on thy happier voyage now toward no earthly pole. There's no place where we can go where God is not. The word here for hold is literally to snatch. Even where, even there, wherever there is, even there, that place that you can even imagine, even there, thy right hand shall snatch me and hold me. I may be erroneously thinking of this, but I think of a parent in a crowded uh, subway area or train station or, or airport, and the little tyke is trying to get away, and that parent grabs them by the arm, grabs them by the arm, or by the coat, and brings them to themselves, never getting out of the, the parent's sight. And that's the picture here. Did he not snatch Lot out of Sodom before he destroyed it? Wouldn't you call that snatching? Right before destruction came, Remember, Second Peter 2, verse 9 says, The Lord knows how to snatch. He knows how to deliver the godly out of tests, out of temptations, and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. And that's what he's doing. He's delivering the godly, and he's reserving the unjust. Oh, what an awesome thought that is. We see in verse 11, If I say, Surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be lighted to me because he says there's no the darkness and the light are both alike to thee because men are such sinners mankind loves darkness rather than light the scripture tells us that and the crime reports tell us that as well oh it's not that there's not crime in broad open daylight there are bold stealers and murderers and bold committers of crimes but the majority of it still takes place place at night under the cloak of darkness where people cannot see. John chapter 3 verse 19 tells us, this is the condemnation that light is come into the world. And men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And their conscience really could not bear for it to be revealed or shown in the glowing light of day. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light 
neither cometh to the light. And here, of course, our Lord is being personified as light. Lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, and they are wrought in God. As we've said, most of the world's crimes are done at night. Darkness may hide our our deeds from men's eyes, but darkness is his light to the all-seeing gaze of the Lord. It doesn't matter whether it's light or dark. He, He sees through it all. One night in 1977, you might remember, some of you might be old enough to remember, that in New York City, the power system was absolutely shut down, the power grid in all that vast city, and over $1 billion worth of goods were plundered and stolen that night, when the, when the power went off overnight. And, and people laughed about it and said, oh, look how what fun this is. And they stole televisions and broke into stores and plundered because of the darkness and the police and no one could see what was going on. A billion dollars in one night because there was no light. But God saw it all, didn't he? I read recently where a man who 40 years ago in the darkness sneaked into a church and broke into a, a machine, uh, a stack machine, and uh, stole uh, the, the change in that stack machine. Forty years later, the Lord had dealt with him about that deed as a young boy, and he sent a letter to the pastor confessing it and with a check for $1,000. How, I don't know how much change it was, but he was trying to, to make restitution and to add up the interest that would have been all these years. Do you see, we might forget things. We might put it out of our mind. But at some point, the Lord reveals things. And even if not in this life, in the great day, all things will be revealed. Everything will be laid open and bare. This man found the Lord and found his mercy and his grace, and he wanted to make things right. Darkness. Forty years, time does not do away with things, does it? Darkness does not make it not there. Verses 1 through 12 tells us of God's omniscience. He knows and sees everything, but the last part of the, the chapter deals with God's omnipotence, the power that he has. For thou hast possessed my reins and covered me in my mother's wombs. When we begin to read about this description of birth and conception and even God's designing us before he ever places us in our mother's womb. There's probably no no more poignant scripture in all the Bible that talks about God's attention to each of us individually. We know that no no two of us have the same fingerprints. Can you imagine all the millions and millions and billions of people who've ever lived and no two have ever had the exact fingerprints? That one fact alone ought to silence every atheist. That one fact alone, that that chance, that all people who have ever lived, no two fingerprints have ever been alike. Is that not absolutely astounding to you? I mean, that one fact alone is so amazing to me that uh, I know there are far more other things that prove there's a God in heaven, but that just absolutely cannot be chance. It cannot be. And so, in fact, David is so amazed by this that he, 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 and he did not have access to the science and the medicine that we know today. So this comes from where? These facts, what God does in the, the conceiving and the, the designing part before birth was revealed to him. So the, the information that we have today about how a baby grows in the womb and, and, and still there's a much mystery to all of this. 
And yet he was amazed at the whole process, and we should be too. We're rejoicing in our church here, this recent birth of today. And the, the nursery's growing almost daily, isn't it? Uh, crowded there, and, and, we're, and our own family is growing, and we're just absolutely enthralled with it all. Isn't it a wonderful thing that, 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 that what the Lord does? We know that every living creature is made up of microscopic cells so small that the letter O on a page in front of you uh, would c- contain between thirty to 40,000 of them. Can you imagine? Each microscopic cell is a world in itself, an entire world, containing an estimated 200 trillion tiny molecules of atoms. Each cell, in other words, is a micro-universe of unbelievable complexity. All these cells put together make up a living creature. Think of all that God went to to make one person. Each cell has its own specialized function, and each works to an intricate timetable which tells it when to grow, when to divide, when to make hormones, when to die. Every minute of every day, some three billion cells in the body die, and the same number are created to take their place. During any given moment in life of any one of these cells, thousands of events are taking place, each one being precisely coordinated at the molecular level by countless triggers. Where do those triggers come from? They come from the Creator. The human body is more than a million, million of them, a million in each square inch of skin, 30 billion in the brain, billions of red blood cells in the veins. We could go on and on. That's just as astounding as the stars and the, the universe and the space and that, that, that seems to have no end. All of this is not the result of chance. How could it be the result of chance? It's the intricate design of a master designer who decided in eternity past all of these things. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. You can't say anything else about it, can you? Then David marvels at God's thoughts. It's not just that he designs us so intricately, how harmoniously the body works. The, 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 just take, the, for example, what the hand does, the, the coordination, and all the intricate things that a hand does and how it's designed. We could just go on and on. It's not so much that God makes us like machines and just sets us to motion, but he makes us to have fellowship with us, and he has thoughts toward us. I think that, above all else that we could study, is most amazing. Because the question is, why? Why would he have thoughts toward those who are rebellious toward him, that continually break his laws, that continually disappoint him and grieve him? In his mercy and his grace, he loves us with an undying, uh, incalculable love. We're the objects of his care. Think of all he goes to, and I'm saying this for our benefit, colloquially, all the trouble he goes through for each one of us just to manage us, just to manage Chris Lamb, to keep me going and alive and sustained and then guiding me, his thoughts toward each one of us, we couldn't count them. We We couldn't imagine all the thought and care that goes not only in designing us, but the maintenance of us, all of our pilgrimage journey here, and then preparing a place especially for us in eternity. And he continues to think of us at all times. Then we see what David prayed 
in these last verses, surely thou wilt slay the wicked. Now, this seems to be an abrupt change in this beautiful, grand psalm. He turns from the creator, the designer, his love and his care toward us, the amazing thoughts that he has for us, his knowing everything, his power, to God's enemies and, and his own enemies. David, you don't, you don't get to be the king of a, a nation like Israel without enemies. And he knew that what his enemies would do to him and his kingdom if they could. When you're at the top of the, of the, of the ladder, there are always those who'd like to knock you off. I don't care what field it is. There are always the piranhas that are circling that would like to see the demise of a successful person, a wealthy person, a good person, uh, a person who's worked hard. Whatever area it is, there are always those who are jealous, and there are always those who would wish them ill. And David knew that. And that his enemies were waiting for the prime opportunity, for just the right opportunity to deal with him. David knows what God will do on his behalf. He says, they speak against thee wickedly, and thine enemies take thy name in vain. And remember, our Lord says he would not hold them guiltless who takes his name in vain. Do I not hate them, O Lord, that hate thee? And am I not grieved with those that rise up against thee? And the picture is these puny little humans with their fists balled up fighting the Creator God and cursing God. Can you imagine that, how horrible that is and how pitiful that is? It takes God's name, and to take God's name in vain is no little matter. It's quite a serious matter. And probably the most broken of the commandments is that very one. God will not hold them guiltless who take his name in vain. It is to insult the creator and sustainer of all things and to bring him down to man's level. God has created mankind to bring him glory, not to blaspheme him or to ignore him. It's been well put. Watch the company you keep. It is no small thing to be close friends with those who hate the living God. And that's what David has in mind here. David says, Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate thee? Am I not grieved with those who rise up against thee? We have forgotten that there is a such thing as a holy hatred. To hate the things that God hates. Being righteously indignant and angry, abhorring those who bring attacks against God and his mercy and his grace. David declared that he hated those who hated God. Now, some people have a trouble with that. But these would do away with God if they could. They spurn the mercy and the grace of God. They, they curse their creator and they would do him harm. It is no light thing to hold such hatred in one's heart. This is a very serious matter, isn't it? It can easily turn sour. It can turn to a bitter spirit. It can make you be what you should not be. And so David prayed for protection in all this. He prayed that God would keep this holy balance and to him to keep things in perspective and commit those of God's enemies to him for God to deal with. Search me, O God, he prays. He could only come to this conclusion. As you look around you and you see the horrible terrorist attacks on innocent people, people being beheaded, oh, it makes you boil, little children being abused and, and wronged and, and, and the, the human trafficking. And I could go into all these things that, that bring a hatred against the sin and against those who would perpetuate the murder of babies and all the, the things that we could think about that, that would bring these emotions to mind. And so we have to be careful, don't we? 
Search me, O God, and know my heart and try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me. Sometimes we can underestimate our sin and put the sin of someone else in a worse light than our own self. And while we see these things around us, these atrocities, and we should pray that God would have his way, I spent much prayer this afternoon praying over our church and our membership and, and praying this terrorist movement. How do you deal with these kinds of things? Lord, thwart them, thwart the, the, the plans and plots that they would have to harm innocent people. And we pray whatever God would take to, to do that. We're to pray for his, the safety of these believers in these countries where their lives are in danger every day. But at the same time, we should be praying, Lord, now you search me. Help me to judge my sin, my rebellion, my haughtiness, my pride. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. The psalmist was no hypocrite. He knew that there were depths of wickedness in his own heart. Your heart, my heart. He knew that there were lusts there. That there was things that need to be dealt with. And so standing before the omniscience of God. He knows everything, doesn't he? He knows everything about Chris Lamb. He did not try to hide his inner thoughts. How could you do that? How could you foolishly, like a little two-year-old who hides behind their hands or put the cookies behind their backs as if it's not there? We have a cat who will get in a box in the middle of a room, and she's open to everybody's view, but she thinks nobody can see her. She really feels like that she's absolutely hidden. That's how foolish we are, aren't we? Hide behind a stick and, you know, a little child can get behind a broom pole and, and think that they, nobody can see them. And, but that's how foolish we are. Oh, Lord, you know me. And so open up my heart to your inspection and show me what it looks like. He pleaded that the Lord would lead him in the way everlasting, that not only in his inward life, but his outward life would be pleasing to the Lord God. Now, sometimes Christians work on the inner life and they they don't think about their outer life, their attitudes, their actions, their words, their harshness towards other people. And, and they erroneously think that they can have be right with the Lord on the inside and not right with others on the outside. But here the psalmist says, you can't do that. Lord, because of these things, you know me and try me and show me what I'm like. We cannot escape the Lord from whom he did not want to escape. This knowledge is too wonderful for us, but it causes us to fling ourselves on the mercies of God, doesn't it? And there we worship. I think this psalm ought to be read daily. It wouldn't be a bad prescription, would it? It would help us to keep things in perspective. This all-knowing, omniscient, all-powerful God. And then the Bible always brings us back to where we should be, our relationship with him. Are you rightly related with the Lord? Is your sin been judged and dealt with through the, the provision of the Lord Jesus Christ at salvation and then in confession and cleansing as a believer? Oh, Lord, search me. Why would we pray this? Because we daily need to be searched, don't we? Daily we hide things from ourselves. Daily we excuse our actions or our attitudes that we know are not right. Now, Lord, show them to me in the broad, bright light of your word. And may I judge them and deal with them. If we would judge ourselves, he would not have to judge us. He would not have to discipline us. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. May the Lord bless his word to our hearts tonight.